Welcome and thank you for joining this conversation on leading. In many ways, this is about discovering how to amplify the goodness and the greatness in the world, our own and others. So as you listen to the interview, hear your own wisdom being echoed and your own leadership being called to new levels of inspired engagement. I'm Shauna Steffen, and this is On Leading with Polly Higgins. This interview was born of a chance encounter several years back with Rolling Stone magazine when I happened upon an article on global warming's math written by Bill McKibben. After reading Bill's calculations about the certain cascade of ecological disaster should the world's fossil fuel industry burn its current oil reserves, I was left thinking that there must be a way to hold the top oil producers accountable for crimes against humanity. At the time, I didn't know that crimes against humanity is one of four types of international crimes against peace, and to do what I was thinking would require that a fifth type of crime be established, the crime of ecocide. Fortunately, barrister Polly Higgins has been working to do just that in service to the greater good. Polly Higgins was in court when she had an epiphany that the earth was in need of a good lawyer. Following that insight led to her life's work and recognition for being one of the world's top 10 visionary thinkers by the ecologist. Named Green Hero by the Guardian newspaper and nominated the planet's lawyer by the Performance Awards, Polly is author of Eradicating Ecocide. In this interview, we learn how Polly is changing the rules of the global game to tip in favor of a thriving balance for life on Earth through international ecocide law. We also witness restorative leadership in action as she translates the circumstance of our global ecological emergency to aligned momentum for addressing the climate crisis at its source. Polly, thank you again for creating the time and space to be with me, given all that you're up to right now. And my first question is, what do you love about your life? (laughs) I love the fact that I'm very much um, aligned with what I care about. Mm. Uh, I'm doing this, you know, I'm I'm working on ecocide law because it's a natural extension of my own intrinsic values. Mm. I I believe that not just myself, but we all collectively owe a duty of care for the earth. Mm. In fact, it's an honour to be able to actively participate in this and bring my unique skills as a lawyer into being to help create a new law, missing law. If I understand correctly, in 2007, you began your research on the possibility of creating this um, new body of earth law, and you were invited to the United Nations to speak on your proposal. So how, Polly, how did this change in life path come about for you And what has made your successes since 2007 possible? Um, I think there was a really seismic um, choice point in my life. I I believe that we all have um, choice points, but there, there are a few that are truly critical choice points. And maybe we have six or seven, it's said, in the world, you know, in our lifetime, in a lifespan, that you maybe have six or seven critical choice points that can actually take you in a completely different trajectory. And my uh, critical choice point with regard to this, you know, taking me on that journey was after I, 
I mean, actually, when I, I was in court and I found myself looking out of the window and thinking it's not just my client that's been badly injured and harmed, so has the earth. Mm. And something needs to be done about that. And I found myself thinking the earth is in need of a good lawyer. And it was a thought that didn't leave me alone because it, it crystallised into a, a question. How do we create a legal duty of care? Mm. Uh, I could see there was missing law. So how do we create that legal duty of care? What are the laws that to be put in place? And the starting point was the recognition that actually the earth has rights too. The right to life being the mm. most crucial one. But actually rights on their own aren't enough. Uh, it's how we give governance to those rights. Because actually indigenous rights are codified in statutes. But mm. because it's not a crime, nobody pays any attention to them even though the indigenous have the right to life and the right to peaceful enjoyment of their land um, under various conventions, it's, it's a nonsense because actually their land is being destroyed at never given rate because it's not a crime. So our human right to life is governed and protected by the criminality of the taking away of life, and that's the crime of murder. And if it's not just an individual, but it's collectively the community, then it's a crime of genocide. Mm. So if we're to protect the Earth's right to life, then it's about how we govern collectively the Earth's right to life. And that's about criminalising the mass damage, destruction to a loss of, of a given ecosystem. Mm. And that that is ecocide. So mm. it, it's that recognition that there are two sides to this coin. It's not enough in its own to recognise the rights. It's about how we actually put in place the duty of care, the responsibilities, the obligations to ensure that that life itself is, is protected mm. and protected the lives of those who stand up and speak out on behalf of the Earth's right to life. Yeah. So in your book, Earth is Our Business, you mentioned the Amazon rainforest and the Canadian tar sands as examples of ecocide happening today. Can you explain how those are examples of ecocide? Yeah. Uh, the definition of ecocide is extensive damage, destruction to or loss of ecosystems of a given territory. And there are two different types of eco ecocide. There's human-caused ecocide. So that's largely corporate ecocide. So if you look at the Amazon, for instance, it's big transnational corporations going in there um, raising vast tracts of the Amazon uh, for want of corporate um, use. So whether or not that's uh, for mining purposes, whether or not it's for uh, industrialised agriculture purposes, um, I, whether or not it's for monocrops or, um, of soybeans or what have you. Mm. I, so that mass damage and destruction that's playing out and kind of marching forward. Like, likewise with the Athabasca tar sands, again, that's corporate ecocide that's playing out there, all for pecuniary benefit, you know, um, without actually taking on board the consequences because, hey, it's not a crime, uh, the mass damage and destruction that's involved in the process of that. But there's also there's another ecocide playing out here. It's not just ecological ecocide, it's cultural ecocide. Mm. And cultural ecocide is when communities are either being forced, forced off their land or um, their way of life is being destroyed. Mm. Or both. Uh, so this is about how you don't have to have necessarily dead people on your hands to have a cultural ecocide, but it's the destruction of their way of life, the loss of their natural deep connection with their, their land and their sense of place and their way of engaging with their community. 
there is another ecocide, um, and that's naturally occurring ecocide, and that's when you have rising sea levels, uh, for instance, tsunamis, floods, uh, anything that causes mass damage and destruction that uh, is caused by catastrophic events, uh, naturally occurring events. And... Uh, Whilst you can't sue God <laughs> or prosecute God, um, what it does is it, it, it imputes a legal duty of care that those who are uh, at risk of or have um, been at the receiving end of, of a naturally occurring ecocide are given help and assistance. And that's very important when you're about to go under uh, underwater because of rising sea levels. 54 small island states are threatened with rising sea levels. So this is a law that then creates a legal duty of care, which you don't have. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist just now in law uh, to give them assistance internationally. And, of course, this is a huge problem because climate negotiations doesn't give them that assistance either. Thank you. So it cuts through all of that. Yeah. When you were speaking of the prevention of ecocide, you explained that when laws are built from malum in say something that is wrong in itself, they reflect a higher moral code like the crimes against peace. Could you please explain crimes against peace and why you see ecocide as being the fifth crime? Yeah. So the international crimes against peace are the crimes of most significant concern to humankind. And, and that's actually stated in, in the, uh, the Rome Statute, which is the governing document for the international crimes against peace. So you have genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes of aggression, the run-up to war. Most of these are dealing with wartime crime or the run-up to war. Uh, so it, it, it's deliberate, systematic attack. It, it's it's um, harm on a collective level. Uh, but the biggest problem we have is that during peacetime, we don't have any international crime. So ironically, you can cause more harm during peacetime than you mm. can during wartime. So there's missing law. And we know this because at the moment, if you're in the Amazon, for instance, and you are standing up as what's known as an environmental defender, as someone speaking out against the mass damage and destruction that's playing out, that in fact, you can end up being branded the criminal and end up in a criminal code of law, whereas the company that's causing the harm is protected in law. So something's going very wrong here. So ecocide law is a law that supports the environmental defenders. It actually is calling in the support of law and saying, yes, you're right. There is an ecocide. There is a crime playing out here. And the state must therefore intervene and prohibit it and prevent it mm. and take action against those who are doing it. But at the moment, that doesn't exist. Mm. And at the moment, with environmental defenders, we now know that over two people a day are being killed wow. for standing up and calling for you know, the harm that's playing out for their community, their land, their territory to, to, to come to an end. And that, that's, that's a statistic from the latest Corporate Watch report that they've done into environmental defenders. So people's lives are on the line here. And, you know, when, when you get the indigenous world standing up and speaking out and saying, you've got to stop them, 
you know, from destroying the Amazon. Actually, it's their communities and their own families that are ending up dead for standing up and speaking out. So we're in a very privileged position, if you like, that we're able to stand up and speak out on their behalf. It's rather like the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. It took others, mm-hmm. you know, in other countries to stand up and say, morally, this is wrong. You know, and because it's morally wrong, then it has to become legally wrong as well. So this is when malum and say becomes malum prohibita. We prohibit it because morally it's so wrong. Mm. Given what you were just speaking about, where do you see the rights of nature successfully being championed and defended? And what do you think are the keys to those successes? be honest, rights of nature will never get off the ground unless it's recognised that there has to be accountability and governance of those who are destroying it. And mm. that's where ecocide comes into it. Mm. Otherwise, it just remains a nice, voluntary mm-hmm. narrative mm-hmm. that only people who care engage with. Mm-hmm. But you're unsupported with that narrative if others can go in and destroy without being held to account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... The rights of nature narrative is grounded in reality only when ecocide law is put in place, mm-hmm. in truth. And, and so this is the thing, it's the two sides of the coin, mm-hmm. you know. Um, one doesn't exist without the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've seen that successfully done in a couple of places in the world, right? Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You know, there are countries that have um, laws in place that, you know, Ecuador's uh, recognized as Pachamama, earth rights in in essence in its constitution. But Ecuador is still mining and still pulling up their patch of the Amazon because, hey, it's not a crime. It's not a crime, so there's no enforcement. Bolivia, likewise, really championed the Universal Declaration of Mother Earth Rights, which I had initially presented into the UN and actually embodied that in their own laws, but it's not a crime. You know, so, And they, they're expanding their mining interests as well. So, mm. you know, it, it does beg the question that if you really are going to follow through with this, then you have to criminalise the mass damage and destruction. Mm. Yeah. Otherwise, it's it's tokenism. It's not enough. Thank you for that uh, alarming uh, next-level wake-up. It's very important first steps, without a doubt, but it's it's not taking us far enough. We know that because, you know, the harm is still playing out. Right. So so then, in terms of the, the opportunities to move forward... To the next level. You've likened the opportunity for all nations to pass ecocide laws overnight to the passage of economic rescue packages or terrorist legislation when circumstances are extreme. So what do you think it would take for that to happen in the case of the ecocide threats that we are facing in the 21st century? You know, it could be a number of things. Um, Sometimes you just get to a tipping point where you've got a moment of emergency. Um, and that can be an external event or it can be an internal Mm -hmm. recognition that now we have an emergency on our hands, Uh, whatever triggers it. But the beauty is a moment of emergency is just an opportunity for something new to emerge. You know, emergence comes out of emergency Mm -hmm. if you allow it, rather than just putting back in old patterns of harm. So... 
a true moment of emergency is where something better can emerge. You get to that point of saying, okay, we have to take a different direction now. And you could say that ecocide law is emergency legislation. We will get to that point uh, and suddenly it will be done. So it is a matter of when, not if. Mm. I, you know, the writing is on the wall. Mm-hmm. It's pretty uncontested in truth. When, when I was in Paris, um, Prime Minister Hollande, the Prime Minister was holding a big event for faith leaders. And, mm. you know, it was a continual narrative from the Pope downwards that, you know, we have a duty of care here, that we are in, in, in times of emergency. And yes, so the opportunity is here for something new to emerge, for a new form of governance based on care. Mm. And that was a very strong narrative from the Pope's encyclical through all the faith leaders. Mm. Thank the heavens for this Pope. (laughs) Absolutely. It's giving other faith leaders permission to speak in this language of care. Yes. And of course, that's that when malum becomes malum prohibita, when something's wrong in and of itself and everyone's saying it's wrong and we have a duty of care, you know, from moral duty of care into legal duty of care becomes a very easy next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a shifting of the narrative happening here, yes. which is very powerful. Yes. Well, and, and the context that that is... Um, what the Pope spoke to in his encyclical and what you have been speaking to um, is in my next question here. Could you please explain how you see Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights, that humanity's right to life, and the threshold of 2 degrees centigrade temperature increase, that dangerous climate change threshold that was set in the 2009 climate change negotiations, how you see... The, what you see is the relationship between Article 2 and the two degrees. Yeah. So there's a direct correlation between Article 2, our human right to life, and the Copenhagen Accord, where it was agreed and signed off by, I think it's 194 of the 195 countries, that anything over two degrees increase in temperature constitutes uh, dangerous levels. I. What is very interesting here is that, of course, that that point, I mean, it's an, it's an arbitrary level in truth, mm-hmm. you know, it's just what they, they agreed on. And truth be known, if you ask a small island state, they're arguing for it to be far less than yeah. that because they're seeing the extremities far earlier. But yeah. take it as it may, what it does say is that um, those countries are recognizing anything over that is putting humanity at, at risk of harm or injury to life. Uh, and that's a breach of Article 2 of our human right to life. And so, therefore, arguably, it becomes incumbent upon those states to close down all dangerous industrial activity that is contributing to increasing our greenhouse gas emissions and those levels in temperature. Mm. And when you look at it, there's now been very good research done on this, I, the carbon major support that came out 18 months ago, two years ago, actually identifies there are just 68 companies in the world that are the, the, the carbon majors, those that are contributing the most to greenhouse gases and therefore increasing in temperatures to the, to the earth. And arguably you could say that therefore they, these companies have to be Either their their operations have to be diverted into something that's non-harmful or closed down. 
problem is it's not a crime. You know, it's a breach of a human right. Um, and until we can actually put in place the criminality, we're not getting very far. Uh, for instance, in the Netherlands, the Urgenda case mm, was brought mm -hmm. by an NGO called Urgenda. Uh, friends of mine were plaintiffs in that action. I know the lawyer who, who leads on that, uh, Roger Cox, fantastic person in this arena. And a fantastic case. The, the court case was kind of based loosely around those principles. And they were basically calling on the court to hold their government to account for climate change. So, they, yes, they've got a declaration, but in truth, if the mm -hmm. government doesn't do anything, it's not much you can do about it because it's not a crime. Mm -hmm. So you can't, can't hold those individuals to account in a criminal court of law. Mm -hmm. um, and much as you get a declaration from the court saying the government has to do something, there's no comeback, there's no accountability mm -hmm. in, in the criminal in, in criminal legal um, uh, courts, and that that's that's a huge problem here. Mm -hmm. uh, that we have to go that next step so that we give the support of law. We put that in place so that when when we actually hold that accountability, whether or not it's under Article Two or whether or not it's just going straight to a criminal court, that actually there is some form of enforcement of this mm -hmm. uh, and actual accountability of those very few people at the very top end who are making decisions, and we're talking just a few thousand people in the world who are making decisions that actually put the rest of humanity at risk of injury or harm to their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have case law in Europe that says where humanity is put at risk of injury or harm then uh, by dangerous industrial activity, the member states have to close down their dangerous industrial activity. Mm. And I, I say that that is persuasive case law, not just in Europe, but right across the world. So but it hasn't been tested in court yet. It's a very powerful disincentive if you're the CEO of an energy company and ecocide law is being put in place where you're sitting there saying, well, what are we going to do? We're going to do some more fracking on conventional oil extraction, Arctic drilling. I might go to prison for that. This company might be closed down and the shareholders would find it untenable that we're doing something that's an international yeah. crime and that government's not going to give us the permit. Or shall we become a, a clean energy company, a renewable energy? Well, the government will give us the permits and the banks will give us the finance and our shareholders will love us for it because instead of being the problem, we become the solution. Yeah. And that's the power of international law. It can actually turn that around and make the problem into the solution. And that, that's really what this is all about. It's, you know, at the end of the day, what, what you really want is for these 68 companies or how many companies you know, are, are really the major yeah. carbon, uh, the carbon majors, to actually turn from being the problem to the solution. So now you have, like, you have clearly identified the essential next step as a matter yeah. of convincing the leaders who hold the power to change the rules of the game. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about what that next step is going to take? My, my yeah. sense is that it's right on the horizon here. Yeah. So um, it's, it's 122 signatories to the Rome Statute. And it's two-thirds of that, so it's 83, that can actually ensure that this comes into law. So I, but the key point is earlier than that. The, the tipping point is when we actually have 
a head or a group of heads of state standing up and speaking out, calling for ecocide law, because that triggers a whole load of activity that has to move very fast. And that means then there's the tabling of the amendment and then the voting on it. And it's a numbers game. You just, you know, you come on board and once you've got enough signatories, then it's international criminal law. So the, the tipping point is actually the calling for it in the first place by you know, a head or ideally a group of heads of state. And I mean, there's a very big window of opportunity here in Paris this year, the climate negotiations, to have your voice amplified um, if you choose to stand up and speak out at this time if you're, as a head of state. I, whether or not that's taken, who knows? All I can do is legally advise and say you have this window of opportunity. Whether or not you choose to step into it, ultimately it's your decision. All I can do is flag up for you that you do have this window of opportunity and you do have this legal pathway. It doesn't have to be the hard way. It can be you know, the very fast and easy way mm-hmm. and direct way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not I'm not actually a campaigner. I don't really know how to campaign. I'm a lawyer. I just legally advise in truth. Um, I mean, yes, I'm very much out in the public domain about it, which is a way of really spreading this and seeding it. But, you know, what I'd love is for the NGOs and these other organisations to be part of what I call the green firewall of support around those who wish to stand up and call for this. Mm. Um, It's not my expertise and it's not, you know, it's not the best use of my skill base to to be a campaigner as such. Mm. Um, All I'm doing is just legally advising. Mm. Got it. (laughs) Well, thank you for your legally advising leadership. So I just have a final question. What do you think it will take to bring out the best of our diverse humanity to ensure a sustainable future? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, well, you you know, in a way, this is about daring to be great and Mm -hmm. inviting others to dare to be great. And for me, you know, Greatness, again, is about the, you know, the intrinsic values and, and speaking to the highest of another person, inviting them to come from their highest being I, in whatever capacity that is, because it's a legacy issue and inviting them to, you know, see themselves in a wider context. It's, it's an expansion of a vision of what's possible in the earth. It's, it's about the recognition that, you know, our time is finite here, so do something truly great with it. Who are we to not dare to be great? You know? mm-hmm. And part of that then is that your decision-making becomes fundamentally, comes from a very different place rather than thinking, as a politician, you know, am I going to get in for the next four years? You start to really look for seven generations hence and and say, what is it that I can do here that will create fundamental change and create a better world? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it is it's the daring to be great. And, mm-hmm. you know, by daring to be great, I am talking about the intrinsic values. I'm not talking about, you know, hey, I want to be a superstar on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's being in service to something greater than the self mm-hmm. and seeing our roles as one of being service-driven, if you like. Mm-hmm. Just my heart is so full of gratitude <laughs> for you. I oh, just... sure not. Thank, Thank you. you. So many blessings to you. Yeah, and you, you too. You, you too. Until the next time. Go well. This has been On Leading with Shauna Steffen of the Restorative Leadership Institute and Barrister Polly Higgins, author of Eradicating Ecocide. To support the work of international ecocide law, 
visit eradicatingecocide.com. And to learn more about the art and science of restorative leadership, visit restorativeleadership.org to subscribe to our podcasts and publications. Thank you for your generosity listening with us today.